we have not been able to see each other face to face for a while. We have not, uh, we are not in a position where we can see our sisters and brothers in La Iglesia face to face. And so I'm so thankful for, for, this, uh, for this video presentation. I'm so thankful for your generosity. Um, you've been so generous to our sisters and brothers and you can see it on the faces of our sisters and brothers. And, and that's so good to see because it's in times of, um, of need, in times like this, that we can be the face of Jesus and the hands of Jesus and the head of Jesus and the heart of Jesus to, to our sisters and brothers as we live together facing COVID-19. Um, so beautiful to see the, to hear the voices of that single mother, Maria Garcia and, 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 the, and the couple and, and others who were so gracious in, in sharing their thankfulness with us. And, and so let's continue to pray for, for our sisters and brothers. Uh, today we will be um, going into our series in, in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6 is, is where we are, a very, very crucial juncture in the book of Acts. And we want to ask ourselves the questions that were asked by the early church. Ten crucial questions that they asked in the midst of crises. Ten crucial questions that we will be going into. And they deal with the issues that our sister church, La Iglesia, brings before us. Um, it's questions that, uh, that, uh, that we need to ask ourselves. It's, it's dealing with the question of widowhood. It's dealing with the question of what, what happens to people when things are going wrong. Uh, there are questions that we have to ask before things go wrong so that we are ready to address those questions when things do go wrong. And, and so those are the kinds of questions that we will be, we'll be addressing as we go on. Uh, Acts chapter six deals with the question of widowhood. So if you'd let me, um, if you will, please, would you let, if you let me uh, turn in my Bible uh, to Acts chapter six, and we will read from, from this chapter. Um, and then I'm going to request you also to open up your Bible. So boys and girls, turn to your parents and say, where is my Bible? Where is my Bible? Can you ask that question? Where is my Bible? And go to your Bibles and, and open up in your Bibles along with your parents to uh, the New Testament. The New Testament, uh, oh, it kind of is about two thirds of the way into the Bible. So that's a long, long way into the Bible. And, and then there is the first four Gospels, which is called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And after that, you come to the book of Acts. That's what we are talking about here. And we want to reflect today on Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, uh, which deals with some of the crucial issues that our sister church, La Iglesia, is dealing with. Uh, issues of widowhood. Issues of single motherhood. What does it mean in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis? Um, and so let us turn to that. And I'm reading from the New International Version. I'm going to 
request you to open up to whatever version you have. If you have the new international readers version, that's a good text to open up to. And here's what it says in the new international version. In those days, in those days, very important words, you know, in Greek, which is the original language of, uh, of the, uh, the New Testament, these are words that are capitalized. And in some senses, it is reminding us that we need to be mindful of our days, these days of the coronavirus crises, these days of the COVID-19 crises, these days of the racial crises. And that is why those words are capitalized in the Greek. It says in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so we'll talk about that. You know, people complain. I don't know why do people complain, but, but kids, don't you complain to your parents when you're hungry and, and you complain and you say, I'm hungry, mom. I mean, especially when they take you on those long journeys to the East Coast and to the West Coast and all that. When are we getting there? When are we getting there? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Well, we, adults complain as well. So these people are complaining. And then it goes on to say, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And I'll talk about that. You know, what does it mean to wait on tables? Are these waiters or who are these people? And I will disagree with this translation because I do always disagree with translations because the Bible is given to us in, in Greek. And, and, and this is not waiting on tables, but this is the word. This is the act of deaconing. It's the act of doing God's service. So we will talk about that. Verse 3, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. That's a very important phrase. And we'll encounter that over and over again in the New Testament. How does the early church do work? They do work because there are people who are full of the spirit and wisdom. And then it goes on to say, we will turn these responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, says verse 5. They chose Stefano, Stefano, Stephen. So there were others. There was Philip, there was Prochorus, there was Nicanor, there was Timon, there was Parmenas, there was Nicholas uh, from the city of Antioch. And he was a person who was a convert to to Judaism, they were all selected. They presented these men to the apostles. The apostles are the, the 12 people that were chosen by God who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Through whom? through these seven men and through the whole church. And then it goes on to say about one of those people whose name was Stephen. It says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, 
performed great wonders and signs among the people. Do you see that? He wasn't just doing a waitering work in some restaurant. He was doing the work of God. He was preaching. He was teaching. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then verse 9 says, you would have thought that everyone would say, wow, what an amazing man. He's doing amazing work. Let's just rejoice and encourage this man to do what he's doing. But it says, no, opposition arose, verse 9. However, among members of the synagogue of the, of the freedmen, well, these were, these were independence people who say, we want independence, but we don't want your kind of independence. We, we don't want you to be doing these things. These people were people who were from Cyrene, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Do you see that? He was a person who was full of the wisdom of the Spirit of God. Then, verse 11 says, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous things against Moses and against God. Do you know that that's what they accused Jesus of doing as well? We've heard him say blasphemous words. Verse 12 then goes on to say, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the Torah. These are religious leaders for, for, for you know, these are the elders of the church, if you will. And, and so they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs uh, Moses handed down to us. So that was the same accusation that they made against Jesus, right? And so now they're making it against this person by the name of Stephen, who was chosen to be a deacon. And then it goes on to say in verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That is so powerful, right? Here's all these people saying mean things, but then when they look at the face of this person, they say, oh, his face is shining. And that's my prayer that right in the midst of everything that happens here to our family or Redeemer life, our faces will shine. So would you pray with me as we dive into meditation on this text? Our Lord, our God, we thank you. We thank you for your servants like Peter and James and John. We want to thank you for your servants like Stephen. You did amazing things through them, O oh Lord. And we pray that you would do the same things among us, in our midst. And most of all, we pray, Lord, that no matter what happens, our faces would shine like Stephen's face shone with the face of Jesus. So Lord, speak to us. 
as we open our hearts and our minds to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the book of Acts is a powerful book. And this series that we're going through is getting caught up in the movement of the Holy Spirit as it was in the early church. That is our quest. What was the movement of the Holy Spirit like? And then we ask God, God, move among us like you moved in that early church. And we saw that at the beginning when we reflected on, on Acts chapter 2, where it says that there was this movement of the Holy Spirit. The sp people started doing all sorts of amazing things. And then Peter gets up in Acts chapter 2. So you can thumb your Bibles to a couple of pages before that. It says in chapter 2 and verse 17 that Peter gets up and he says, let me talk about it. That, that is found in the, in the Old Testament and the prophets. It says in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. And verse 18 says, even on my servants, both women and men, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs. And so then it goes on to say that he says to the people in verse 22 of Acts chapter two, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. And so he preaches about Jesus, that these things are happening among the people because of this one person called Jesus of Nazareth, who is God himself. And, and then it goes on to say that many, many people joined the church. The church grew. The church grew in hundreds and in thousands. And then it goes on to say something amazing. They devoted themselves, this is found in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. They devoted themselves to seven things. Seven marks of the vibrant growing church are seen here. And I want us to just pay uh, a casual attendant attention to this. We won't go into detail because we want to get back to Acts chapter 6. It says they devoted themselves first to teaching, very important, teaching the word of God, teaching of the apostles to focus on that. Secondly, to fellowshipping and gathering, teaching and gathering. You know, of course, we can't do that now because of the COVID-19 crisis, before, because of the shutdown, but they gathered. But we're gathering together like this, you know, through, through Zoom, thankful to Zoom. Um, then the third thing is they gathered together for eating, teaching, gathering, eating. And we all like to eat, right? I miss eating with you all, uh, but one day we will. And they gather together and eating. And then, and then right after eating or during the process of eating, they had communion together. That is very crucial. Uh, communion wasn't set apart from eating. They ate right in the middle of that. They said, let's remember Jesus died for our sins. 
and his blood was shed for our sins. So they were doing communion together. Next week we will. So um, boys and girls, remind your parents that next week is communion Sunday. We will be having communion together. So go to the grocery stores and get your grape juice and go to the grocery store and get your tortilla bread, your Mexican tortilla bread, uh, because we will be celebrating communion together. So teaching, gathering, eating. No. The fourth part is called praying. They were praying and they were doing wonders and miracles together. So praying and doing wonders and miracles. To sixthly, unifying. They were at one says says the Bible here. They were at one together. Um, and, and that's a very important aspect. And seventhly, uh, it, they were increasing. They were increasing. So teaching, gathering, eating, communioning, praying, doing, unifying, and increasing. Now, that's a good thing, right? Increasing is a very important thing. But there are other complexities that arise when people are increasing. So now I am going to Acts chapter 6. Would you fast forward to the text I read to you? They were, in, they were uh, increasing in number. Uh, they, and, and these were the days. Uh, the first question that one needs to ask when things are increasing is, is what I call the while question. What is happening while good things are happening? If we understand what is happening while good things are happening, then we will be ready for situations. What is God doing during the coronavirus crisis? What is God doing during that time of the early uh, uh, church? Those are the questions that people pondered on. Because we need to realize that God was in control of history. Now, uh, David Kim led us in these songs, very powerful songs at the beginning, which talked about uh, better is one day in, in your courts and thousands elsewhere. Why? Because do you know something? That it may be 2,000 years ago that Jesus died on the cross. And it may be that, that, that uh, Abraham lived around 2000 BC, which is, uh, which is about 4,000 years ago. But, but in God's eyes, that's like... It's like, it happened like this. That is God's understanding of time. And there'll be a time when you and I will be in the presence of God. And that'll also be in God's eyes like this. Because we live for 70 years, 80 years, whatever, you know, however long human beings live. But in God's eyes, that's nothing. Because 2,000 years is nothing. Because 4,000 years is nothing. I, I want to beg your pardon because my, uh, my, uh, it's saying that I need to recharge my batteries here. So I'm going to get rid of this. And hopefully you will be 
listening to me still. Um, can you give me a thumbs up, um, Richard Yoon or something? All right, we're okay. So I want to uh, get back to the text here uh, where it says that, that they were, it, it was happening and they were, they were mindful of the fact that God was in control. God was in control. And we need to ask ourselves the question, what is God doing? Yes, coronavirus crisis is happening. We don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know if schools will open. We don't know if work situations will open. We don't know how it will open. There's a lot of unknown factors. But in those days, God was in control. And we have to be always mindful of the fact the while question says that in God's while, in God's while, these are not unknown wiles. It may be unknown for us. We would be scared of situations because we don't know what the future holds, but God is in control of the while during the time of Adam and Eve, of the while during the time of Noah, of the while during the time of Abraham, of the while during the time of Moses, because in God's eyes, it's like, it happened. And that's what the early church was mindful of. They also asked themselves, the early church, ask themselves the question of, of multiplicity. You know, the church was growing so rapidly it was growing. And the church was growing by all kinds of people. Of course, there were people that came to Jerusalem from Babylon. They came to Jerusalem from Persia. They came to Jerusalem from Africa. Why? Because they were running away from all kinds of bad things that were happening there. And these people were all in Jerusalem. They were all, if you will, in Vernon Hills. And they were saying, we have experienced bad stuff in our lands. People did horrible stuff to us. Do you have an answer? And Peter said, yes, we do. It's Jesus. And Stephen said, yes, we do. It's Jesus. And, and, Paul, uh, and uh, John said, yes, we do. It's Jesus. Let's take you to Jesus. And of course, people started gathering together in thousands because they were finding answers in Jesus. Creciendo. Creciendo says the, the, the Spanish word. The people were, were growing um, numerically. The church was growing. It was growing spiritually. And the church was doing well. Now, that's a good thing. But we also need to realize when good things are happening, we also need to be ready for situations that will arise right in the midst of good things. A church that is not ready for God's answers to tough questions in the midst of good things happening will remain right there and they wouldn't know how to deal with bad things when good things are happening. And that's what they were dealing with. They were dealing with, with, the, with, with, with the multiple question. They were dealing with the question of multiplication. The third question that arose is to deal with the issue of widowness. They found out that all these people who are becoming followers of Jesus are people who have been demolished by the cultures that they are coming from. 
It's those are the kind of people. People who know it all. It's not the people who are, um, uh, you know, uh, who, who have everything made up for them. It's people who have been rejected and dejected. These are people who always go through a rough time. And who are the people who are at the apex of the people who have been desecrated by society? They're called the widows. They were widows. Widows that came from Babylon, who are widows? Widows are people to whom people have done bad things. They did bad things to their husbands and, and bad things happened to their husbands. Bad things happened to their sons. Very similar to what is happening in our present racial crisis, isn't it? Who are the people that are crying? It's the widows. It's the women that are crying. I, 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 been reading, uh, I just wrote a, a section, a review for, for this book that my friend Sung Chan Ra published. And if you have not read this book, I would encourage you to read it. Sung Chan Ra is just an amazing man of God. He teaches uh, at the seminary where I am at North Park. And he wrote this book called The Prophetic Lament. The Prophetic Lament. And he begins this book, and it's a book about lamentations, which is, uh, I hope I'm, I get to preach about lamentations from the book of lamentations to you uh, at some point. Look at what he says. This is what he says as he begins this book um, uh, called The Prophetic Lament. He, he talks about his, his own family, and here's what he says. He says, it's a moment very few people forget, the moment your father dies. So he talks about this time. For most of my life, I had a tumultuous relationship with my father, says Sung Chan Ra. He abandoned our family when I was young. And understandably, I resented his absence. His departure left us in dire financial straits and we ended up living in a low income inner city neighborhood in Baltimore. My mother took two low paying jobs to keep our family together, but our long working hours resulted in both my parents being out of the home. Do you see that? Widowhood and orphanhood. Deep seated animosity built up over the years toward my dad, says Sung Chan Ra. Infrequent and irregular contact with him only fueled my resentment and anger. He would just show up suddenly and disappear. Show up suddenly and disappear. Then in his 70s, my dad returned. After he lived that life wherever he lived, he returned. Nearly destitute, he took advantage of the graciousness of my mom, who lived like a single mother, like a widow who received him back home. Isn't that amazing? She declared that it was the responsibility of the mature Christians and the rest of the family to extend grace to the one who had wandered away from faith. She embodied the story of the gracious father loving the prodigal son. And then he goes on to say, 
Long, not long after my father returned to my mom's house, he suffered a major stroke. After several weeks in the hospital, the prognosis was not good. He was moved from the hospital to hospice where he would linger for nearly a month. My wife, newborn granddaughter says, newborn daughter says, Sung Chan Ra and I were living in Massachusetts when my father was incapacitated in Maryland. So I flew down right after the first stroke. Do you see that? Here's this woman, amazing woman of faith who lived the life of a widow while her husband was still alive and living his life somewhere else. And now when she's older and he's older, she's taking care of a stroke victim and lovingly taking care of him. And so then Sung Chan Ra goes on to say, that trip resulted in aggravating my animus toward my father. Not only had he saddled my mom with medical bills to further burden his family, I went back to Massachusetts and returned several weeks later when I was told that he might not have long to live. By this point, my anger had amplified along with his mounting medical bills. I went to his bedside, but did not give thought to the reality of his imminent death. There was anger brewing within my friend, Sung Chan Ra. Later that evening, I found myself in the family waiting room, listening to my mom, listening to my sisters as they, as they began to talk in detail about the funeral arrangements, an event that would happen in just a few days. It finally hit me, says Sung Chan Ra, with full force that my dad was really gonna die. This man I hated because he had left us alone and he left my mother to take care of four little kids. And now he is back. It finally hit me with full force, he says. I left the waiting room rushed over to my father's room and kicked out my nieces and nephews. Alone with my dad, I sat by his bed, clasped his hand with mine. Through tears and with tight grip on his hand, I offered him my complete forgiveness. I asked for his forgiveness for the years of bitterness I'd harbored against him. Through his tears and his tightening grip, we were reconciled just hours before his death. It's a powerful book. I would encourage you to read this because it talks about lament. It talks about forgiveness. It talks about the story of, of immigrants that have come here and there's widows among us. There is widows in La Glacia for one reason or another. There's widows in the African-American church. There's widows in, in, in society around us. Maybe not literal widows, but more than literal widows, aren't they? And that is the issue that the early church was engaging with. It had increased. It had rapidly increased but it increased because there were widows that joined the early church and that will always be the case. The church is not a place where we sing happy songs 
and rejoice with big bands and nice looking people in front of us. The church is always a place where people come and find help, find healing. It's a hospital, if you will. It's a hospital where people want to come because they're suffering from COVID-19, because they're suffering from the ills of society. But with that comes problems and issues that the church needs to be ready for. And that is a very important thing for us to keep in mind. We need to first understand the widow's question, the single mother's question, the single's question. We have to deal with those tough questions, church. If we don't deal with those tough questions, we are not being the church. And that is what Sung Chan Rab brings before us as he ponders his own life, as he ponders what he went through. Thirdly, we need to, or fourthly, we need to engage with a racial question. Because these women have come, they're widows. Some of them are Hellenistic widows. Some of them are Hebraic widows. And they're all saying, we are the real Christians. Those are not the real Christians. And the other one is saying, no, we are the real Christians. And then they're saying, we are the real ones in want. They're not the real ones in want. Look at us. That's what the Babylonians did to us. That's what the, the Alexandrians did to us. That is what the Syrians did to us. We are the people who are in real need. Not those people. They were living in Nazareth. They were living in Galilee. They were living in those people. They had it made for them. And those people said, you don't know what we went through. You don't know what the Roman soldiers did to us. You don't know what those evil people did to us. You don't know what the Sadducees did to us. We are the ones who are in real need. And so there was tension between the two. And, and each one was saying, no, they are the ones in real need. Do you see that? Those were the issues that the church was dealing with then. Those are the issues that we are dealing with now. And we have to engage with that. There is my, my friend uh, who, is, who, who used to be the provost at North Park University and now is at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And, and he recently had an interview uh, with National Public Radio. Uh, Michael Emerson, Michael Emerson, one of these days I would want Michael Emerson to come to redeem a life. Amazing man. He, is, he has dealt with these issues for a long time. He is one of the foremost sociologists of our time. He wrote this book called Divided by Faith, Divided by Faith, along with another sociologist. And here's what it says. He says that, that we as a church have the same issues that the rest of the, the rest of the world has. We think we don't have racial distinctions. We think we are immune from the racial problems, the racial pandemic that has struck the world. We have the same problems. Look into the church, says, says Michael Emerson, and find healing there. Just like Sung Chan Ra had to go and find healing with his father. He had to go and come alongside his mother help her in her widowhood, her real widowhood and her widowhood before she actually became a widow. So we need to stand with our widows. 
And then he goes on to say, Michael Emerson goes on to say that sadly, even multiracial congregations have not bridged the racial divide. Martin Luther King Jr. said that the 11 o'clock hour is the most racially divided hour, right? Then we came up with multiracial churches and he says, no, even multiracial congregations have festered the racial divide because we all want to be like the people who are the who is who. No one wants to be like the people who are low down there. Even multiracial congregations have not, sadly, says the sociology, bridged the racial divide. We are as divided as the rest of the society. Then he goes on to say, we need to put it into our mission statement. We need, we need to think about who is on the platform, who is the pastor, who are the worship leaders, who are the people who are leading the church. We need to diversify and we need to put people there who bring before us all the racial diversity that is there in society. If we do that, then we will bring about healing. Otherwise, we will just fester on and propagate the racial divide that is there in society. So the early church needed to deal with that. There were Hellenistic Greek widows. There were Hebraic widows. And both needed to be understood because both had their own problems. No one's problems was greater than the other's problems. The early church had to come to terms with that. I want us to look at another couple of words here, okay? They started complaining, all right? So whoever wants a complainer, 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 grumbling. This is what I call the grumble question. The grumble question. You know, and unfortunately in the Western church, we don't want complainers. We want compliant people. That's what the modern church has done. Don't be a complainer. If you want to be a complainer, you're out of the door. Be a compliant person and believe in what we are believing. Do the way we do things. Don't be a complainer. Be a compliant person. Whenever that happens, that is bad for the church. And I want to, I've just finished teaching a series of classes in Germany. I was engaging with the German church and there were leaders from the German church who were a part of my class. And while I was dealing with books like the book of Lamentation and the book of Hosea, I, we came upon the realization that the German church wasn't a bad church. The German church was not a bad church, but look at what happened during the time of the Nazis. No one was complaining. They just silently let the Nazis and Hitler do whatever he wanted to do. There's a need for complainers, not compliant people, the compliant, German church let the Nazis and Hitler do whatever they wanted to do. And as a result of that, six million Jews were killed, horribly, horribly killed, while the German church just became 
and kept uh, to be a compliant church. What does grumbling do? You know, this is a good word, actually. To be a complainer is a good word. I want you to turn. Okay, boys and girls, there's a book called the Book of Psalms, okay? It's found in the Old Testament. So with your moms and dads, turn to, to Psalm 1. So I'm turning to Psalm 1 in my Bible here. It's a very powerful psalm. It begins with these words. It says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the Torah, in the word of the Lord, and, and who meditates on his Torah, his word, day and night. Now, you know, that word that's used, that's translated as meditate, that's a very interesting word. It does not mean meditate. All right, okay, it means meditate. But in reality, the word in Hebrew is hagah. It means they grumbled with God. They grumbled with themselves. That's what it means to meditate on the Bible. Meditating with the Bible is to grumble and say, Lord, why? Lord, why? Lord, why? That's when we become really spirit-oriented Christians. Unfortunately, we are not the kind of people who grumble with God, who grumble with ourselves. That's why we are just mundane kinds of Christians and don't know what to do. Let me take you to another situation where this word is used. In, the, in Genesis chapter 32, boys and girls, there's another narrative that is, that is found, and that is a narrative of a guy by the name of Jacob. Jacob did a lot of mean things. He deceived his brother. He, he deceived his father, got the blessing from his father, and then he ran away. And then uh, in chapter 32 of Genesis, he's coming back, but now he's scared because he's gonna meet his brother Esau, to whom he has done very bad stuff. He has lied to him, has deceived him. So he's scared. On the way back in chapter 32, it says, that he encounters a man. Who is this man? This man is God himself and he wrestles with him and he wrestles with him and he doesn't leave him go, doesn't let him go. And then this man looks at Jacob and he says to Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob says, my name is Jacob. That's found in chapter 32 and verse 27. And then the man said to him, this man is God himself says to him, your name will be no longer Jacob, but your name will be called Yisrael. Do you know what does that mean? That means a person who struggles with God. That's what it means to meditate. Grumbling is a good thing. We need to have grumbles in the grumblers in the church redeem a life. If we don't have grumblers in the church, then we are not a church that is following God's will. We need to grumble with God, grumble with the word and say, Lord, what am I gonna do in this situation? What am I gonna do in this situation? We've become too much a mundane Christians because we are not like Jacob wrestling with God. We are not like Psalm 1, which says grumble with God when you go into the word of God. That is what they did. And very quickly, as they grumbled, they got to know what is God's heart for the people. 
they selected people. They selected people like Stephen. People who understood the whole gospel. It was preaching the word and it was serving, deaconing. That's the word that's used. They served and they healed people and God did so many miracles and so many mighty things through Stephen. But that doesn't mean that life was easy for them. Look at what happens if you look at these words very carefully. And I won't go into a whole lot of detail here, but I want us to read this. There was opposition. And we have to be ready for opposition. We have to be ready for opposition. But throughout it, throughout the hostility, we have to be full of the Holy Spirit. And the main thing is that our face, the facial question, our face should shine in the face of Jesus. That's what Stephen did. But it all begins with asking those questions. The wild question, what is God doing? Where is God? The multiplication question, the multiple question. We need to thank God when people come. Who comes? The widows come. The unfortunate people come. Not the big, rich people who have no, no, no need to come to God. And then we have to deal with the questions of the single question, the racial question, the grumble question. Right in the midst of that, we need to understand that we are accountable. We are a part of the racial divide that's there in society. And then we go, we, we go with to God, come to God with the whole gospel, with the fullness of the Holy Spirit and encounter hostility, but through it all, we are full of the face of Jesus. And that is my prayer. As we emerge out of this coronavirus crisis, Redeemer Life, my prayer is that we would be people who are like Stephen. There may be opposition and there will be opposition. But let people look at us and say, oh, this person's face, it shines like Jesus. It shines like Jesus. And that's what Sung Chan Ra saw in his mother. The face of Jesus, what a powerful face, right? What a beautiful face that went through so much, so much pain, not knowing the English language, struggling with low paying jobs, but she would get up early in the morning and her face would be shown and she'd be crying out to God for her children and saying, Lord, I'm bringing up these kids. May their faces shine. And all their faces are shining. Sung Chan Ra and his sisters because of this woman, a widow, 
who cried out to God and her face shone like the face of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, we come before you. During this time of the coronavirus crisis, and we ask these questions, O oh Lord, and at the end of that we pray that your face would shine. Shine, Jesus, shine upon our faces, that people would see our faces, see the faces of our widows and our orphans, and see the face of Jesus, see the face of Stephen's among us, so that you would shine, you alone would shine. So beloved, as you go into the world, may the Lord bless you, May he keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. So that people would see the face of Jesus and turn toward him. Go in this, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen one. Amen.